Hello, EB Online Church family. Hey, wherever you're watching us from, whether it be at home or the beach, you're out riding in your car, maybe you're even here on our campus. Again, wherever you may be, thanks so much for making us part of your day. It's Father's Day, and for some of you, that means that uh, for you dads, your older kids are going to show up and expect you to take them out to eat. I mean, that's what I'm planning to do today with my dad, right? So let's enjoy it. Now, let's be honest. Father's Day is just not a big a deal as Mother's Day. On Mother's Day, there is a higher attendance usually at church, unless it's during a pandemic. Mothers have on nice flowers. They're given the day off from cooking. And then Father's Day rolls around. And let's just be honest, the emotions are just not as high. One time a little boy was asked to define Father's Day and he said, it's just like Mother's Day, only you don't spend as much on the present. But all of this is understandable because most fathers are just not as sensitive as mothers. I heard of a young mother who went down to the nursery of a hospital to find her young husband peering down at his newborn who was there asleep. The mother could tell he was captivated by the scene as he stood there looking at the sleeping infant. She was so touched that she finally tiptoed up behind him, slipped her arm through his and said, Honey, a penny for your thoughts. To which he replied, I just can't understand how they're able to make a crib like this for $89.95. We dads just think differently, right? Now this week, I want us to dust off a biblical story that at times I think we have taken for granted. It's, it's known and it, we're comfortable around it. We know the characters and the plot. We are keenly aware of the tension and the climax. And as they say, familiarity breeds content. Extensive knowledge of or close association with someone or something just leads to a loss of respect. But I think we will find by sitting down once more with, with this story from Genesis chapter 22 that its value to our life is indispensable. Just like, well, just like dad. Genesis chapter 22 is the story of a father's unforgettable day. The day a dad offered his son back to God. Now that son's name is Ishak. It means laughter. And that's what his parents did when they found out they were expecting a new addition to the family. And for some years now, this boy has brought laughter to his family's tent. His father was, now get this, 100 years old when this child promised by God was born and he had ordered his entire life around this boy. Now this father is being tested because heaven wants to know if dad's hope is in God or in the boy that God gave to him. Genesis chapter 22. Abraham, God called. Yes, he replied, here I am. Take your son, your only son, yes, Isaac, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I will show you. Now Abraham lived during a time when it was common for other religions to sacrifice children as a show of devotion. And at this point in the Bible, God has never spoken of his disgust of the practice. So when God says, I want you to sacrifice your son, he is not violating a prior command. He's not doing that sort of thing. That's not the problem that's going on here in the text. Abraham has already shown himself willing to protest back in chapter 18 when God decided to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. You might remember that Abraham stood up and said, but Lord, what if there are, are righteous people living here? If Abraham is unsure as to how just God's intentions are, he will say so. But he says nothing here because he understands like Job that whatever God gives, he has every right to take back. So here's the problem that Abraham is facing. 
How can God ask for the child of promise and still keep his promise? Abraham must reconcile what God says he wants to do with Isaac with what God has promised to do through Isaac. And what I want you to see is that it was Abraham's hope for tomorrow that guided his faith today. So the next morning, Abraham got up early. He saddled his donkey, took two of his servants with him, along with his son Isaac, and then he chopped wood for a fire, for a burnt offering, and set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day of their journey, Abraham looked up and he saw a place in the distance. Stay here with the donkey, Abraham told his servants. The boy and I will travel a little farther. We will worship there, and then we will come right back. And did you catch that? Abraham is saying, I'm going to go offer my son as a sacrifice, and when I'm done, we're coming back. Now, these are not the words of unconscious prophecy. These are words of unwavering hope. Let the Hebrews writer give you the explanation of this kind of hope. Abraham reasoned that if Isaac died, God was able to bring him back to life again. And in a sense, the Hebrews writer says, Abraham did receive his son back from the dead. Now, we know that in the Bible there are stories about people being raised from the dead, but not up to this point. In this point of biblical history, there is no record of anyone being raised from the dead. But Abraham concludes that God has made a promise, that he has been told what tomorrow looks like, and his absolute hope in tomorrow made him make a radical decision to sacrifice. You see, he reasoned that resurrection, although he had never heard of such a thing, was more compatible with the character of God than contradiction. So they go up the mountain. He builds an altar. And then he places his own son upon it. He pulls out a knife. And then the voice of the Lord spoke saying, Stop! You have proven your hope is in me and not in the boy. Abraham came through this test of faith because of his strong hope that God keeps his promises. So let's finish the story Reading on from verse 15. Then the angel of the Lord called again to Abraham from heaven. This is what the Lord says. Because you have obeyed me and have not withheld even your son, your only son, I swear by my own name that I will certainly bless you. I will multiply your descendants beyond number. Like the stars in the sky and the sands on the seashore, your descendants will conquer the cities of their enemies. And through your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. All because you have obeyed me. Now here's why I wanted us to read that. That was the first time Isaac ever heard God articulate the promise. He's heard his dad talk about it. He's heard his dad tell stories about that night under the stars when God spoke to him and said, just like you can't count the stars and the sand, you can't begin to count the number of descendants that that I'm going to give you. You can't imagine what I'm going to do through you and your son. Now, Isaac has heard Abraham talk about it, but this is the first time he ever heard God talk about it. Abraham didn't just pass the test that day. He tutored his son. Abraham's unquenchable hope led to Isaac's teachable moment. Because here's the thing about hope. It cannot be dispensed before it has been displayed. You cannot pass on hope to the next generation by giving them a book to read or a a YouTube video to watch. Hope must be illustrated before it can ever be owned. And this is critical because I know that you and I want to pass on a hope legacy. 
We want the next generation to have a firm confidence in a God who can do immeasurably more than they can ask or imagine. And we have a powerful opportunity during these days ahead to show our children that we live the way we live today because of how sure we are that God comes through tomorrow. In the midst of our children's uncertainties about viruses and body types, racial, racial disparities, college degrees, job opportunities, loves found and lost, we must introduce them to a God who sees their infinite worth knows their every care, and has promised to never leave. And that introduction is made every single day around dinner tables, in dugouts, in the vans, and on Instagram and Snapchat. Whenever we display our hope in God's future, while in the midst of uncertain economic, relational, and emotional times, we are teaching our children that today is worth living because of what God has promised for tomorrow. So here's what we want. We want children who are worshipers instead of worriers, right? I heard about a man who noticed that there seemed to be a lot of hummingbirds in his neighborhood. So he went out and bought a hummingbird feeder, placed it in his backyard, and almost immediately three or four hummingbirds descended on his yard. There were so many hummingbirds that took up residence there in his backyard that he would have to refill the feeder every single day. But over time, he noticed that there were fewer and fewer hummingbirds. He began to only refill the feeder once a week, and he finally figured out why. There was a large male hummingbird that had decided that the feeder was going to be his own private possession. And he would fly around this feeder watching for other birds, and if others tried to feed, he would fly down, diving down on them. It became his domain, but at a cost. That bird could never leave the sight of that feeder. He was never free to fly anywhere else. He had to hover over that place 24-7. His possession became his prison. And that's what is happening in our culture. We have been raised to hold on to our accumulation and affluence. And Jesus told us what would happen if this was the case. He said, you will worry and you will worry and you will worry. Now I want you to think about something. Not for 40 years or 400 years, but for 4,000 years, people have worshiped God doing this. Why is that? Well, one of the basic messages people have communicated over 4,000 years of holding up empty hands is that worshipers cannot be clutchers. Abraham's whole life has been a series of learning this lesson. Let go of your home and let go of your country. Let go of your family. Let go of Lot. Let go of Ishmael. Let go of your timetable of when the promise should be fulfilled. So when we see this man ascending the mountain, don't see the track of a devastated, broken man. See a man that's on his way to worship because he has learned what worship is all about. It's actually the first time that the word worship appears in your Old Testament. The first time the word appears in your New Testament is in Matthew chapter 2. When wise men from the east come bringing gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and they say, where is the child? We have come to worship. Worship at its essence is bringing God an offering. It's the willing and joyful sacrifice of myself that springs out of a heart that is full of hope in God. And isn't that what we want for our children? Do we really want to raise a generation that believes in order to be happy, they have to have a closet that's filled with even more stuff than it already contains? 
Because if that's what we teach them, that life is all about what you can accumulate and how good you can look doing it, then when life gets hard, they are going to go under. Because the things that we have told them bring happiness are constantly susceptible to loss. Our children need hope. So if we're going to teach our kids to to hang on, we are going to have to teach them to let go. We want them to be worshipers, not worriers. I think we also want our children to know God as a reality. That moment on the mountain was the day the Father's God became real to the Son. That was the day that the God Abraham talked about became the God Isaac knew for himself. And the memory of his father's action and sacrifice did more for Isaac than a thousand sermons could ever have done. So dads, let me ask you, what stories are our kids going to tell their kids when life gets hard about the things they learned about hope when they were children? Think about it. What stories are our kids going to teach their kids about what they learn from us about hope. One thing's for sure, there are going to be stories about sacrifice. Hope dispensed must first be hope displayed. The best promise that we can make our kids is that we are going to live in hope ourselves, hopeful that God keeps His promises. Because we want our kids to know God is a reality, not just a doctrine. We want our children to become living sacrifices, don't we? We need to realize that that Abraham could not have gotten Isaac up on that altar without Isaac's obedience. Isaac was a grown young man able to carry wood up a mountain. Being a promise kept was not Isaac's choice, but becoming an offering was. And that trip to the altar would alter his life forever. And don't we want to teach the next generation to crawl up on altars? Don't we want to teach them to offer their lives to God? Scripture says in Romans 12 and verse 1 that we are all to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. And I want you to look at this verse from the message paraphrase. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for Him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what He wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you and He develops well-formed maturity in you. Man, I love that. Isn't that what what you want for your children, for your grandchildren, that they would would take their everyday, ordinary life and place it before God as an offering, and that they wouldn't become so well-adjusted to the culture that they just tried to fit into it without even thinking. Instead, they they would fix their attention on God. Isn't that what you want for your children? Isn't that what you want for your grandchildren? But the next generation will not become living sacrifices unless they see the generation ahead of them giving sacrifices. We must demonstrate for future generations the hope that we have for tomorrow by giving ourselves over completely to God today. So dads, keep up the good work. The sacrifices that you make so that your family can know God as a reality are not in vain. And the greatest Father's Day gift that you will ever receive is knowing that your son, that your daughter, is a worshiper of God.
You know, the pages of Genesis 22 are well-worn. Abraham and Isaac's journey up Mount Moriah is a known and familiar story. What you might not be aware of is that Abraham gave a special name to the place where his hope was rewarded. He called it Yahweh Yireh, which means the Lord will provide. Literally, the Lord will see to it. Abraham recognized that he had a father whose eyes were constantly on him. A father who provided what was needed at just the right time. And for all of us dads, isn't it great to know that we have a heavenly father who sees the mountains that we climb? In our attempts to raise worshipers who know God and and give their lives completely to him, we can't help but feel inadequate to the task. We become discouraged when our best efforts seem to fall short. We second guess ourselves as if maybe we have properly prepared our children to face life on their own. But we serve a God who provides, a father who will see to it. So keep leading your kids up the mountain. Demonstrate to them your confident hope during uncertain times, knowing that even when you don't know what to do, the one who called you to fatherhood is watching and he will provide. Dads, enjoy your day. You've earned it. Now go take the rest of the family out to celebrate you.